Hi, this is Jay Todd Anderson, and you are listening to an archival episode of Filmically Perfect. And I don't know One, two, three o'clock, four o'clock, rock. Five, six, seven o'clock, eight o'clock, rock. Nine, ten, eleven o'clock, twelve o'clock, rock. We're going to rock around ten o'clock tonight. But you glad right so. And so begins another perfect edition of Filmically Perfect on 91.3 WYSO. I'm your host, Nikki Dakota, joined in the studio today by the man who officially, as of this movie, has watched his six millionth. 437, 512,000th movie it is. The film, film, nitrate film archivist for the Library of Congress. We call him George Willeman. George, welcome. I think you missed one in there somehow. <laughs> He's hung over from the party we had for that. Also in the studio today, live in person. He got person. a golden film can. <laughs> Sitting right here now. It is the uh, cat clock was on top of storyboard artist to all the big stars. Been working with the Coen brothers since raised in Arizona all the way back in 84 and uh, right up to this day working with George Clooney on his latest. And we are so pleased to welcome the one, the only force of nature, J. Todd Anderson. J. Todd. Hello, Nikki Dakota. Raising Arizona's 1986. Thank you very was much. It? <laughs> <laughs> See, that's why you're here to keep us all on track. On this perfect movie day, we are brought together to celebrate the perfection of one that I wholeheartedly agree with. Oh, yeah. I, that's such a relief. I was holding my breath all the way to the studio Is today. Is Nikki going to like she, it? You know, George and I, we were discussing, I sure hope she likes this. We're in big trouble. Yeah. This is one of the most fun movies uh, and absolutely endearing that I have ever seen. And it is American Graffiti from George Lucas in 1973. Now, before we talk about this, which was a very early movie for George. Isn't that true? I mean, it's his second feature ever for George Lucas, not George Willeman. He's seen six million movies. Lucas makes them, but George can George Willeman can watch them, man. So not only is it perfect in every way, but it's also notable and um, just uh, remarkable, really, that uh, that is only his second time out, and it uh, reaches these uh, these vaunted status of perfect movie. Now, gentlemen. This is not some arbitrary, just whimsical notion that you sit around one night after eating way too many chocolate chip cookies and think, you know, hey, that movie's really good. No, there are rules that apply here and very stringent. We had to put the cookies, (laughs) chips go in the cookies, then we eat them. (laughs) Those are the rules. Oh, sorry. That's wrong. That's our cooking show, George and I have. In order to be a perfect movie, you must meet these very stringent parameters. Go ahead. Well, first of all, this is American Graffiti, and it is a perfect film because it creates the world it existed. And it sure does sustain that world. Oh, buddy, does it. And uh, regardless of time, uh, changes in society, uh, it still maintains its meaning and its... Uh, Entertainment value. That's right, and it's still... It is a classic. This baby is. Yeah. And like all the other films in our filmically perfect uh, canon, it will never be compared or put in any sort of numerical listing it is perfect in its own scheme. And we don't even need to bother with any extra rules this time because I am right and on board. And you know what? Board. This is one of these films that you can just 
you don't have to sit there and say, how can I impress people tonight at the party by talking about this movie? <laughs> it's just too much fun. <laughs> we've had people call in and say, you know, uh, since we've been listening to your show, we can really impress people at parties. And, we, you know, we say, that's why we do these, of course, to give you all sorts of respect when, you know, somebody tries to show off with some modern movie. You know, no, no, no. <laughs> You've got rules. You're equipped to fight back and tell them how critical of a thinker you, thinker you are when you're talking about movies. Isn't that right, George? That's right. When someone comes to you with, you know that old uh, that old rag about the uh, the midget that got hanged on the back of the set in the Wizard of Oz. You can tell them, no, that's not true, but this is. And they'll say, <laughs> well, how do you know, Smarty Pants? Because because I listen to Filmically Perfect. That's, that's right. right. <laughs> we do it every Friday. It's and just secretly about- inside your head, you go. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great place to come and learn something. You don't you don't leave away unchanged. There's just a, it's an impossible thing to do. So considering that, um, and considering that this was such an early movie for this young filmmaker, it is astonishing what this movie. A lot of achieves. great things to talk about in this movie, aside from it being a fun movie to watch. I want to start out by saying that I did see this when I was a little kid, and I think that at that time, uh, Happy Days, the television series, was already out. So I was drawn to this because, of course, I loved mm-hmm. you know Fonzie and. Uh, and, and the Cunninghams, but uh, so that's what drew me to it. And as a kid, this just had no—I could not access this. I could not um, make this relevant to my own experience. However, seeing it then many years later, uh, it is amazing from start to finish. Also, as a kid, I did not understand that all the action in this film takes place in a single evening. Correct. So, just for a second, I know that the thing about this film is it's so—it's several stories that of course it has many storylines that kind of intertwine and overlap a runaway narrative isn't it George yeah it is like a a galloping narrative and it's it was very 16 year old kid doesn't have galloping narratives every day in their life there's no heavy baggage to compare it with it just goes on and on and on that's one of the striking things about it for its time is that and I think it's what took a lot of people sort of by alarm that that it doesn't have this you know scene A and then scene B and then scene C it's all mixed up and the characters, while they all know each other, all kind of go off on their own adventures, and every once in a while, their paths will cross in different in different ways and fashions. For example, their crew, the cars and music figure so prominently in this, mm-hmm. and they'll pass each other in a car, maybe there. So you get you get you sort of touchstones of how these characters actually do relate to one another. But was this one of the first films to use that sort of scattered narrative, or? It's, or not. it's one of the first ones I can think of. I right can't think hand. of anything um, that was that loose on a narrative basis. Not at that point. I mean, um, Robert Altman kind of gets into that with, um, Nashville. with Nashville, but that was that was after this. And this is. I remember the catchphrase in this is "Where were you in '62?" <laughs> so a lot of things when you refer to them, they're always like 1964 because of the Beatles, and uh, maybe 1956 because of the big '50s. But hardly ever was 1962 referenced as a as a marker in time. Uh, and that's because that's when uh, George Lucas was a teenager. Right. And he just drew upon his experiences. And remember, folks, we wouldn't have Star Wars if it wasn't for this movie. That's right. This was what made George Lucas the, the, the guy that he is. When he was standing on the Oscars last March, uh, you know, I am still supreme. <laughs> this is one of the reasons why this little movie just hit it right in the spot. Is it worth uh, talking a little bit about his first movie? Because, you know, I didn't know until this, the THX, yeah, like THX. that sound thing that comes up. At the, I never knew. I was trying to always say. It's based on his, his college hearing, movie that he made. Right, right. And it shows up on license plates and whatnot. A lot of nods to uh, to that, that first work of his. But um, how astonishing that someone uh, by the strength of this first movie would even give him the... Uh, the means. Well, he this. had he had a good friend in in Francis Ford Coppola. I think who had a lot about getting him involved in this film. 
Uh, Coppola, yeah, Coppola's company was already established, and he was already fairly well known as a filmmaker. I think uh, well, Spielberg very well. was Godfather was done before. Yeah, Godfather this. was so before. That, this, that was so, well. He yeah. had a good, powerful pal in Francis and Ford Coppola. Coppola. Yeah. So I think lots of wine to drink. No, that was before. <laughs> that's, that's, that's now. now. Today, yeah. <laughs> Love that. <remote>. But yeah, <laughs> the, the, the interesting thing about it with its with its rambling storyline, it still does have a definite storyline, and it basically, it's. The, the story is sort of about the, the change in these kids' lives because this day or this evening is the last day that two of the characters, uh, Steve and um, – I can't remember. Richard, uh, Richard Dreyfus. Yeah, I can't either. They're, All uh, sudden, but. Those two are going off to college the next day. So it will be basically the end of their, of their quote, adolescence. They, they will become more adults. They're going off to college. They're leaving home. Everything's going to change for them. So this is like the last night – of their home lives, and it's the Ronnie Howard character and the Richard Dreyfus character. Although there's several, you know, several boys and girls that weave in and out. That's really sort of this pivotal moment. Mm-hmm. They're the all, they them. all became pretty famous uh, directors and stars later, Candy. didn't they? Yeah, I mean, Cindy yeah, Williams, Ronnie Howard, uh, uh, Ronnie Cindy Williams. Williams, Charles Martin Smith plays this wonderful character, Terry the Toad. Became uh-huh. a very, very solid director in, Los yep. a- in Hollywood. Mackenzie Phillips, uh, Phillips, Wolfman Jack, the guy who played Wolfman Jack, and then Paul Lamatt, who whatever became of Paul. Lamatt. Yeah, interestingly <laughs> yeah. enough. Yeah. Is Paul Amat was like the star in this picture, and then the limited screen performance of Harrison of Harrison, Harrison Ford, Ford completely. It, you know, you'd think that Paul Amat was supposed to be Indiana Jones, but Harrison Ford just kind of walked away with this. And I'd seen Paul Amat and other things, but I often wonder what happened to Paul Amat. He played the, the sort of muscle car guy that gets mm-hmm. hooked up with the young girl Milner. by um, John Milner. Yeah, you know, he was the dropout that had all the, the cool all the knowledge on how to be. You know. Yeah, but he ruled the uh, the cruising strip, right? Hey. And, and he's the one who had kind of is kind of the world weary one who's like who's upset about this night because because the two guys are, are heading off for college. He's like, oh, everything's gonna change, you know. I'm not gonna change. I'm gonna music stay has here him in the same fun. since Buddy Holly died. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> We're talking about American Graffiti on Filmically Perfect on 91.3 WYSO, and it's, I tell you, the precedent set by this movie, which we live by today, is. Back when this movie was made in 1972, 1971, you could get these hit songs that are on here. There's a ton of hit songs, you know, predating 1972 back to 1956. You could get this stuff for free. I mean, virtually, not publishing quite. on this Nobody stuff. Nobody wanted it. Publishing right. stuff, it was disposable, ephemeral stuff that back in the top 40 days, they would spend the record until it wouldn't play anymore. And then it was just, you know, tossed aside. Well, There's this so- movie changed Everything as far as publishing is concerned. Now these songs that you you can go ahead and try and get one of these songs from this movie, ten or twelve thousand dollars, you know, for a for a drop on a movie. And, and I'll tell you what, the the people who made this film must have gotten some incredible ironclad contract to use these songs because, as we have seen with a lot of movies that that reuse old tracks now that that aren't available because of the music rights, and this one still is. So either Universal is willing to put out the big bucks to do this, to keep this film available with the original tracks in it, or they got some incredible deal back in 73 from the publishers that the publishers can't get around. That's amazing. <laughs> but, and what's so interesting, by the way, I saw in some uh, of the behind-the-scenes commentary that he was so keen to get these songs. Music is almost a character in this. And, of course, there's mm-hmm. Wolfman Jack who's playing all these tunes. And then you see these divergent uh, storylines that are all... solid tapestry for this Accessing, movie. yeah, the same songs. And you'll hear the same song on in someone else's car or at the store, so you know it's going on at the same time. And yet... You 
you hear it in that way, like the way it would come out of the speaker at the drive-in or, or the sound in a car or in a store Walter as you're Murch passing Walter Murch was the by. sound designer, the world-famous Walter Murch. It yeah. is just delightful the way this uh, is sprinkled through. I remember reading uh, about this movie shortly after it came out how they were criticizing George Lucas, the, the executives that were going to release this picture, saying, why would you want to to put all this old music as your score? This is... This is somebody yeah, who... Yeah, the suits. Yeah. Suits and why you can understand why they stale. say it because it had never been done before. And all of a sudden, somebody was discovering there was a lot of gold out there to be had, and it was George Lucas. Right. And as I recall, the the two uh, LP album that was released along with this film was one of the biggest selling soundtrack albums of that year. It was huge. So apparently, uh, although there's low budget overall, and all these people virtually no names, so they were able to mm-hmm. pull it up. They wanted fresh faces and young people. Um, that after they did spend the not very much money on buying whatever rights they needed for right. these songs, they didn't have anything left over for soundtrack. So the way they, I mean, to say, what do you call it? When actually, is it is it called soundtrack music with just the incidental, the you know, yeah, the, the chorus swells? Music. Score. And oh, the score, score. Yeah, the score no music. Score for it. Now. Um, that they used sound effects instead right. as a musical score. I found that absolutely fascinating. The sound editing on this movie is is one of the better better examples of great sound editing on a movie. It's yeah, simple. It, it's deceptively simple, but it works and functions better than most pictures I've ever seen. And and Merch did so much because Merch is very all about about the surrounding sound. I mean, he's one of the great artists of surround sound <laughs> and if you listen to this film now as it has been remixed for for home audiences uh he places the sounds all around you so while you're in the cars you know the hey george what you got in your you pocket there you got one right. of those uh one of those pieces from the movie we can hear uh, demonstrating some of that sound. I see it hanging out of oh, your pocket. Okay. Oh, Slam yeah, it in yeah, the okay. uh, eight-track cart, eight-track system there. Yeah, Slam it in there. Here's, here's a little chunk for you. Some of this. this is a kind of a simple one, but this is, uh, and also this just shows some of the great little pieces that pieces of, of life that. Um, That's an eight-track, folks. That, <laughs> that that George Lucas and his co-writers came up with. Um, in in this part, uh, Terry the Toad has met up with uh, <laughs> this girl. Who looks a lot like Sandra D. I hear y'all and laughing out there. She wants, him, the uh, <laughs> she wants him to get a bottle of, of booze. And so he's been trying unsuccessfully to get a bottle of whiskey. Um, but that old trick of paying the guy to go in and someone. get it. He, he gives this old wino bum some money to go in. And the, the wino bum basically buys <laughs> wine and slips out the back door. So Terry goes in to ask the owner about this. Kink, kink. Hi. Um, say, was there an old man in here a minute ago? Yeah, he just went out the back. Want something? Um, yeah. Let me have, okay, yeah, let me have a, a Three Musketeers and a ballpoint pen, one of those combs there, a pint of old Harper, uh, a couple of flashlight batteries, and some beef jerky. Got an ID for the liquor? Oh, um, yeah. Oh, nuts, I left it in the car. Sorry. You'll have to get it before. Oh, uh, well, I I also I forgot the car. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, don't you hate it when that happens. Perfect dialogue. But if you notice perfect again, a good example of, of the use of music in that is that in this scene, unlike most of the others, there is not rock and roll playing in the background. He's got like old, it sounds like old Hank Williams or something playing in the background. So 
So it's like this guy is of a completely different world than these kids. So music again setting the scene. It's always I'm a, just there's always so some amazed. sort of music in the background, and they're cruising, and you can hear it echoing through the streets of Modesto when they're driving around. Hopefully, you're driving in your car right now, um, grooving to uh, filmically perfect here. You know, kind of like American Graffiti. Just kind of dream you're in American <laughs> Graffiti in the in the uh, the foreign car that you're driving. You know, just pretend that it's a '58 <laughs> Chevrolet like Ron Howard is driving around. <laughs> and that's one thing we should talk about a little bit is the cars. How Ooh, important the cars, the cars are cool, man. The Deuce Coupe. Uh, George Lucas was a big car fan. He was a cruiser, a huge apparently. Cruiser, yeah. yeah. And um, and in this film, he kind of creates, I like to think of it as sort of modern urban mythology, because throughout this film, all these kids have cars that are very much in tune with their personalities. I mean, the Toad has a little Vespa, and the first time you see him, he, he runs it right into like, a trash can. He's trying to stop it. Trying to stop it. <laughs> um, uh, Richard Dreyfuss' character drives, of all things, a, a this little Citron uh, du Chavot, this little little bizarre French car. Um, yeah, because he's a progressive thinker. Right, yeah. progressive thinker. And, and of course, uh, Ron Howard's character has a very nice uh, big old Chevy, big old Chevy. And, um, but, but the thing about the cars, unlike probably what they were like at the time, all the cars in this movie are just perfect. No rust, no dents, no nothing. Now, of course, most of them were probably borrowed from, from Southern California car clubs. But I think beyond that, Lucas's ideal for this movie was that this is mythology this is a memory film this is how i remember growing up and what it was like and how wonderful it was uh, ron howard gives toad his car for the summertime (laughs) to drive drive it around (laughs) and of course he takes it out and loses it (laughs) yeah it gets stolen (laughs) did we ever find out exactly how somebody stole it straight up stole it i thought it might have well he's got candy clark who is one of my favorite performers in this movie because he's a performance of a lifetime here lightning in a bottle for her man it's just so good you know we're talking about American Graffiti on 91.3 WYSO filmically perfect and uh, certainly it qualifies in every way it certainly sets the uh, it sets the stage mm-hmm. draws it us immediately in creates its own in, world creates it and Cruising sustains world. it and for only just, just 24 hours let's talk for a second about this uh Rule number three about sustaining itself well, through telling, time. I was telling uh, Nikki and George here that anytime this movie's on, on TV, I will watch it. It's just too much fun to watch all the time. And then the scenes are just so... Marsha, uh, I don't know what her name was at the time, but George Lucas's wife cut this picture. Yeah, Marsha um, Lucas. Marsha Lucas. Yeah, they were it. married. Quite the editor. Uh-huh. And uh, uh, there's so much talent on this picture that... You kind of lose track of the the absolute, the absolute vaunting craftsmanship in this little teeny movie. It's just a seamless, seamless, wonderful little movie to watch. And you can start almost anywhere in the movie and and get right into it, yep. which is which is something a lot of movies can't do, and because it's such a because it kind of runs almost in a circular motion, you know. And you can has- pick it up anywhere, anytime, and just enjoy every gag they fly through. You go, oh, yeah, that's those guys. That's those gangsters that pick him up, the pharaohs. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's a... Uh, right. Oh, look, it's it's Suzanne Somers in the 57 T-Bird. Her right. first uh, film appearance, so many firsts in this movie. And that made her career. Yeah. Can you believe it? Just a couple... She's probably on the screen all of 30 seconds in this movie. Wouldn't mm-hmm. you say, George? Yeah, and likewise with Harrison Ford. He's hardly in it at all. Indiana Jones. Falfa, yeah. <laughs> He's like Falfa. What is yeah, Bob Falfa. Falfa. Well, at least they didn't call him Alpha. I, well, I you know. kept made me think of that. But, but yeah, and of course, his big scene at the end with uh, where he uh, he and Milner finally meet up and have their big uh, their big 
hot rod. Do we need a spoiler alert on this, or should we say no? Because yeah. you can't really spoil this one. I mean, there's yeah. really no, there's no. No, then the spoiler alert on this one is a return to American Graffiti, which is you can just you'll probably buy American Graffiti and get that with it. But uh, it kind of ruins the whole magic of this picture by watching that. So the spoiler alert here is don't, don't watch, watch the watch sequel. sequel. <laughs> <laughs> spoiler alert, spoiler. Don't watch the sequel. <laughs> This is filming. You've been warned. You've been warned. It's not going to ruin it for you forever, but let me tell you, it's going to taint you because you'll kind of think about it. No, don't think about that movie. Because they were one of the first movies also, uh, were they not, to leave the sort of tag out so-and-so. I know they did it in Animal House where they put up the picture Picture and then they tell you sort of what happened to that person after the fact. Was this the first? Um, Again, not sure, but it was very close to being one of the first, yeah. I don't want to, one of the things I would like to bring up real quickly here is a little bit about the director, about George Lucas, who, of course, everybody knows now for Star Wars and, uh, and is a producer of the Indiana Jones series, and probably less for Howard the Duck, which I'm sure he'd like to forget, too. Oh. But, um, That's George's... Um, Can we have a filmically imperfect yeah. once and talk about that? <laughs> I had to fight George and say, keep this off the list, man. Um, <laughs> you know? But I find the interesting thing I find about George Lucas is that so many directors, when they get started... Their first films will be very, very simple and very easy, and their, their their art and their craft will build up from there. And George Lucas, it seems like it's the other way around, because THX 1138 is an extremely complicated film, full of complicated storylines and very, very... The tone is so heavy. Yeah, the tone is very heavy, and, and, Ooh, and then this one is a little tone. lighter, and then you get to Star Wars, and Star Wars is very easy, and it keeps going down from there. But I find it interesting it how he's kind of worked backwards. That is amazing, isn't it? So it seems like he was a complicated, intense young man mm-hmm. who slowly relaxed. Slowly relaxed. <laughs> yeah. Until yeah, I've been meaning to get around and talk to him about that. But, uh, you know, I'll tell you, one of the things in this movie that just really sends me over is, and we're going to play it here pretty soon, it's where uh, Kurt, the character Kurt, Kurt yeah, goes it. to find the wolf man, to find Suzanne Summer. And, you know, every time I come to the radio station, WYSO <laughs> in Yellow Springs, Ohio, at 91.3 uh, on your on FM, your FM uh, I always kind of think of the mystery of Wolfman and this movie where he goes and, and the guy's in there. You want a popsicle? And uh, this scene, uh, we're going to roll this little scene here, which I think is just magic in this movie. Looking for this girl. Yeah. Aren't we all? Not here. Come on, come on in the back. You just go around the back. Thank you. This way. Hey. I have a popsicle. The icebox just broke down and melting all over the place. You want one? No, 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 thanks. Listen, uh, have a popsicle. Are you the wolf man? No, man, I'm not the wolf man. Wait a minute. Who is this on the wolf man telephone? Diane. How you doing, Diane? That's the wolf man. (laughs) I love it. it. Man, that's such a great scene. And I think, actually, this film is, is... Probably one of the reasons that Wolfman Jack is so nationally known now. I I do not believe he was that well known before the movie. I think he was a Southern California staple. I remember as a kid, clap for the Wolfman. He gonna (laughs) rate your records high. I mean, and I didn't know who he was. All I heard was his little voice on there. The whole aura of this radio station being maybe across the 
border where it's, it has no regulation. Kind of mystery, and he's yeah. talking only to these kids who are out cruising till two and three in the morning. And when I was in high school, we tried to emulate these kids because we just thought that was so cool. We wanted our own Wolfman, and this is back in the 70s. And we just wanted our lives to be like American Graffiti. You know, yeah. we just thought that that was just the coolest scene going to find the Wolfman. We'd, there was a cinder block building with an antenna, and we'd always think, yeah, the Wolfman's in there when we drive by. But you, know, you expect so much more, and it turns out to be a very mundane sort of, hey, mm. the freezer broke, we got all these popsicles, you want one, you know, kind of. It's not magical and mystical as you would just think. And it's so cool, actually, how that really... Perhaps it could be said that the Wolfman is the narrator throughout this because he keeps coming on. He's playing these tunes. He's yeah. providing the soundtrack. And yet he goes on there and finds uh, that he's just another guy just like the rest of us. And how interesting then that this then sort of helps him out in his epiphany. Uh, the Kurt character, the uh, Richard Dreyfuss right. character. As Cause he, especially because as he's leaving, uh, you know, he's asked, he gives the message to to the guy at the radio station to to put out the shout for for the girl in the white T-bird. Which is and Suzanne. just as he's leaving, he hears the announcement and he looks over and you see in the shadows, you see the guy he's just talking to on the mic doing the Wolfman bit. And he <laughs> it's just too much, man. It's, just, it's mindless good cheer and it's always going to work no matter what. This is a fabulous movie. There is, and that's uh, rule number three about sustaining itself. It's because it speaks to these human, the human condition, particularly that we all go through in our teens, this angst, this this crunch, this, uh, you know, the cosmic question that comes upon us 63 all. cents a gallon of gasoline. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Did they show that? Was it on a sign? I don't know. I'm sure I that's what it was. It was... Not $3, Probably less than that, even. $4 <laughs> a gallon. <laughs> American Graffiti on the Filmically Perfect on 91.3 WYSO. And uh, we all agree, and in fact, I think are in uh, just a triumphant uh, agreement that this is one of the and best movies ever made. And what better movie to start out the, the summertime with this, this movie right here. Yeah. No question. Hey, we are uh, coming up on the end of our time, but I would like to uh, remind everybody that there's a lot available to you on our website at uh, perfectmovie.net. That's perfectmovie.net. If you would like to send us an email, we would love to hear from you. A lot of people uh, send you. us movie suggestions that we have totally forgotten about, and uh, George, have always, George and I have always liked them. We just, you know, thanks to your friendly reminders, uh, we use them. Uh, yeah. Quite a yeah, we know there's a lot of perfect movies out there yet we haven't caught up with, so keep those... Uh, Keep those emails coming. Certainly love to see them. And, of course, stop by our website at any time at WYSO.org. Again, we always want to hear from you. Stop by the website at perfectmovie.net and do send us an email, filmguys at perfectmovie.net. And thanks again for listening. J. Todd Anderson, thanks for being here. Boy, how could you not want to do talk about a movie like this? Thank I know you very it. much. I know. I think I'm going to go home and watch it again. Yes, George Williman, always a pleasure. As always, thank you so much. Thank you. We're going to film guys shuffle it on out. Tune back in next week. Are we going to give a little uh, peek under the rug? What are we What are we doing next week? Next week, I think we're going to go uh, into the future with uh, Paul Verhoeven and take a look at his film RoboCop. So brace yourselves. That's coming your way next time on Filmically Perfect on 91.3 WYSO. Thanks, gentlemen. Thank you for listening to an archival episode of Filmically Perfect. Please keep an ear out for new episodes of Filmically Perfect. Coming very soon to iTunes and hosted on our website www.perfectmovie.net See you 
please. <laughs> <laughs>